no matter how close you got to the person in power. And I, you know, I was traveling in the back of the plane with Tony Blair when he flew out to the Azores to declare war on Saddam Hussein. But then the door closes and the decisions are one side of the door and the journos are on the other. And I wanted to be in the room when the judgment calls were made and helping shape what was happening, not just report on it. And that was the joy of crossing the floor and going to work for Boris Johnson at City Hall as the door would close and I'd be on the inside. The modern nature of leadership is you have to articulate a sense of vision and a sense of purpose and persuade people that they want to join your company and they want to stay with your company and they want to buy your goods and they don't want to boycott your goods. So it's harder now to be the sort of incoherent, aloof, uh, difficult, sometimes misogynist, homophobic, not always, but, you know, um, old-fashioned man. Welcome to the Success and Ideas podcast. I'm Richard Myron. This is the podcast where I try to understand more about how you define and achieve success. Is it about good ideas, great leadership, luck, or a combination of all of those? Helping me cut my way through this conundrum on this particular edition of the program is Gitta Harry. Now, Gitto's career spans the peaks of political journalism, where he was a chief political correspondent at the BBC. He also had other roles. And he's also worked at the very highest levels of communications, firstly as director of comms for Boris Johnson, who's now doing some other job in UK politics. He went on then to become the director of comms at News UK, formerly News International, a job that came in the wake of the phone hacking scandal that involved a number of newspapers in the group. Now, Gitto, welcome. Thank you very much. Before we came on, I, I did say you you were a bit of a deity, you know, when I was at the BBC. You turn on the television and inevitably you'd be there standing outside number 10 Downing Street. And, and that was your beat, obviously. And I think there's a lot of mystique, maybe wrong-footed mystique around politicians about, you know, they're either hugely disparaged or, again, like deified, uh, you got to see these people up close and in the flesh. Is there something different about these people when they achieve such high office? Well, I spent the first couple of years of my life uh, on the campus of a mental hospital. Um, and my father was a psychiatrist. So it was great training for, you know, covering politics later in life. Um, these people are slightly different. They are driven uh, they are passionate. Uh, they can almost, some of them, be psychopathic. Uh, but they are principled almost without fail. You know, I have very little time for people who are ultimately dismissive of politicians because most of them, most of them who certainly succeed in politics are capable of making far more money and having a much easier life outside of politics. So there is a reason that they're there. And it's usually a mix of, of ego and vanity and all that, but also of high principle. They almost invariably have a sense of what the UK should be like and there's a sense which you need if you're going to get to the top that nobody else could actually deliver that apart from you. And with some, they project that more successfully than others. Certainly, Tony Blair was extremely smooth. Someone like uh, someone like David Cameron almost modelled himself uh, on Tony Blair. Some of those around David Cameron certainly referred to uh, Tony Blair even today as the master. And then you see somebody like Theresa May or you see someone like Gordon Brown and you think they're really ill-suited to be out there in the public eye, you need a skin like a rhino. You need to be able to articulate your vision. And they're not bad people, but they just couldn't get it across. 
Is that because we live in this age where there is this complete microscope upon every breath and move that a politician makes that, it, you know, it, way back when, you know, Winston Churchill was a man who had reputedly a bit of a drinking problem and suffered from depression. Maybe in this day and age, someone like Churchill wouldn't have made it. Whereas, you know, as you kind of intimate, someone like Blair, he was a master communicator almost before anything else. Is it the fact that now it's the communication skills, maybe even more so than the leadership, which needs to take front and centre? I think a decent, successful politician needs to be a great communicator. And, you know, you mentioned Churchill, but I would go for Lloyd George as well. You know, hugely charismatic uh, figure. And because of that charisma, you can achieve great things uh, in politics. Lloyd George, you know, like Churchill, presided over, you know, the the UK during a time of war. He introduced national insurance and the, 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 all, the all the heavy lifting, essentially, uh, for the welfare state. Um, and, and, and he was a very flawed character with all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, personal sort of indiscretions that today would have got him into trouble, a little bit like our current prime minister, but a little bit like our current prime minister, the charisma would have made those things bounce off him, I think. So it is weird, and I think it's an aberration, really, to the timeless kind of laws of politics that you get the odd one who somehow, in reaction to somebody probably who's been hugely charismatic, a forceful character, that we sometimes then want to go for somebody who's dull and boring and technocratic. And then we realise pretty quickly, as we did with John Major, as we did with Gordon Brown, as we did with Theresa May, that we don't really want that because these people are the cheerleaders of, uh, of the UK, whether you agree with their politics or not. You want them to kind of look cool on the world stage. You want them to project a sort of power and authority and uh, and, 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 and sense of vision. Um and uh, and in the end, I think, therefore, uh, politicians should be charismatic characters who can articulate uh, a vision very compellingly. It's very interesting, and I hadn't thought about it before, but that kind of pendulum that you kind of set out there, the um, Thatcher, Major, and then to Blair, and then to Brown, and then to Cameron, and it's, it's almost, it's almost synchronised in a way, in the way in which you describe it there. It is. So you, you can start guessing who comes after Boris and how soon that happens. Um, and maybe it's a technocratic character who's understated. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there is a sort of magic. And I think there's something about Boris Johnson that's different to, to, to Blair and Cameron. They were great performers. They were hugely uh, articulate and all that. But there was always a sense that it was an act. Uh, it's interesting. Boris is not like that. He'll stop and talk to anyone in the street, harder now that he's prime minister. But when he was mayor of London, you know, he would get, you know, accosted on the tube and he would say, well, sit down and let's talk this through. And 20 minutes later, he'd he'd just spend longer with a 17-year-old, you know, student or whatever than most politicians will do in their lives. So why is it that he's got this characterization of someone who's a great performer but hasn't got substance behind him? Yeah, I think that people have wanted to put him in, in a box because they are political opponents and all that. I mean, they all know in reality that, you know, there's plenty of substance in a man who can read ancient Greek and Latin and, you know, got the top scholarship to Eton and was president of the Oxford Union and taught himself Mandarin and can converse fluently in French and Italian and reads profusely. Most politicians don't, you know, I started off saying how much I admire them. Most of them don't spend remotely long enough thinking about things and reading about things and challenging their beliefs. It's interesting that you went from being a journalist uh, observing, and I know you would have had background 
briefings and talks with with politicians about which you couldn't necessarily diverge all the details to being in the room. And funnily enough, my career trajectory was somewhat similar in being a journalist in the Middle East to being a spokesman for a you know, UN envoy. And I found it fascinating because all of a sudden you were hearing stuff. And I was like, oh, I wish I'd heard that when I was, I wish I'd been in that room. Did you have that same feeling? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's what led me to wanting to cross the line, I think, is no matter how close you got uh, to the person in power. And I, you know, I was traveling in the back of the plane with Tony Blair when he flew out to the Azores to declare, you know, war on Saddam Hussein um, and had a chat with him on the way back. That's about as close as you get as a journalist. But then the door closes and the decisions are one side of the door and the journos, no matter how close they are, um, are on the other. And I wanted to be in the room when the judgment calls were made and 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 helping shape uh, you know, what was happening, not just report on it. And yes, that was the joy of of crossing the floor and going to work for Boris Johnson at City Hall as the door would close and I'd be on the inside. And I was, you know, it was great to be in the room um, drawing perhaps on some of my experience as a journalist to try and make sure that the decisions taken in the room uh, were better ones and, and ones that would last and work. How would you grade him, therefore, as prime minister? Because he's getting sort of really broiled. He's he's being hauled over the coals in many ways for his performance. How how do you see it? I think Boris Johnson's enormous and quite unique strengths are these very, very finely tuned political antennae um, and and a natural sense of connection and empathy with people. And when when those are dominant, when those are allowed to roam freely, he invariably makes an unusual sometimes judgment call but it seems to be one that works and has you know widespread support and seems to be the sensible thing to do where he's not so good is when he's not able to follow his pragmatic antennae shall we say because he's committed to following an ideological cause and two things have happened to Boris Johnson since he was a very successful mayor. One, that he had to provide the answer to the question of whether we should leave the European Union as, yes, we should. Whether it's the right thing or the right time or the evidence has changed, it's no longer something he is free to uh, make a, a judgment call on according to his instincts. He has crossed the line and committed to that. And that has has reined him in. And similarly, I think with COVID, instead of following his instincts, he said very early on, we will follow the science. So once again, a man who would like to, and is at his best when he follows his instincts, is committed to following what the scientists say. And of course, what the scientists say, you know, varies. And different scientists say different things. And the science, even if they're all agreed, doesn't cover all the considerations. And even if, if it covered all the scientific or medical considerations, it doesn't cover the economic consequences. So when you commit yourself to following the science very early on, you deprive yourself of the ability to weigh up what the scientists uh, are telling you with what your instincts are telling you are also very, very valid uh, considerations that you should bear in mind. And I think that's why he hasn't quite been playing to his uh, to his strengths over the last few months. And the hope post-Brexit, post-COVID, um, having got rid of some of the, uh, you know, the, the dreadful uh, people influencing him, you know, in a, in, in, in a very damaging way uh, from number 10, hopefully he can be himself. Hi, it's Richard here. Sorry for the interruption. I'll keep this quick. This production's made by Earshot Strategies, a podcast company founded in 2017 by me. 
I'm passionate about podcasts, which is why I set up Earshot. It helps a range of clients make the most of the wonderful medium of audio. We've worked with huge multinational companies like Airbus, international organizations, as well as universities, think tanks, publishers, nonprofits, and many, many others. We work with them from idea to ear, from providing expert advice on changing an existing podcast or launching a new series, through to training, production, and promotion. To see and hear more about what we do, visit our website www.earshotstrategies.com Now, with no further interruptions, back to the podcast. Now, you were also, as a journalist, you were North America business correspondent, and you know, in your in your work in communications, you deal with business leaders, captains of industry, and so on. How different are they from politicians? I mean, they have to succeed in their fields; their, their success is defined by you know, the bottom line, how their companies or corporations are faring. And I mean, just to mention some names of the people that, you know, I know that you've dealt with in journalism, you know, Richard Branson, you know, Sergey Brin of Google and so on. Those kind of people, are they similar character types to politicians or or business leaders a different breed in how they how they operate and how they go about succeeding? It's a really interesting question. I mean, the the first thing that struck me when I started interviewing business leaders as opposed to political leaders, is how few of them are comfortable with being interviewed. Um, You know, some of them are almost incapable of articulating three coherent sentences uh, about themselves or their company. You know, people would be astonished that uh, business leaders who they admire, who've achieved great things, you know, cannot, you know, finish a sentence without, you know, two or three swear words in it. Uh, others can't even maintain eye contact. Um, Bill Gates, one of the most successful men in, you know, the recent history of the world, is, you know, is almost incapable of of, of holding eye contact and, and articulating three sentences. Um, and I'd interviewed him a couple of times. Richard Branson, again, you know, there's no charisma coming out of his mouth. The charisma is a sort of manufactured thing about the kind of the character that would be in a hot air balloon or kite surfing or whatever it is. But he doesn't ooze charisma when he when his lips are moving because very, you know, very rarely do, you know, do great sentences come out. And a lot of them don't feel the need to justify themselves or articulate a vision. They think that the numbers speak for themselves or there's an arrogance there about the press, but there's a fear of the press and there's a sense that you can avoid engaging. It doesn't go for all of them, of course, you know, the best. Uh, and and I think the modern nature of leadership, anyone who hasn't cottoned on to this yet, you know, needs to hire people like us to help them on this. But the modern nature of leadership is you have to articulate a sense of vision and a sense of purpose and persuade people that they want to join your company and they want to stay with your company and they want to buy your goods and they don't want to boycott your goods. So it's harder now to be the sort of incoherent, aloof, uh, difficult, sometimes misogynist, homophobic, not always, but, you know, um, old-fashioned man. You also dealt with in a way in the wake of crises, News UK, and I'm sure you've dealt with other crises. How can a crisis either define or ruin a reputation or indeed a company? You know, never waste a good crisis. A crisis, 
The danger, and I think this was the danger with News International, News International didn't really stand for anything. It was just a holding company for a bunch of brands that people knew very well. The Sun, The Times, The Sunday Times, News of the World. Nobody really bothered talking about News International. But when the phone hacking crisis happened, suddenly News International was a, you know, a, a household name. And a global brand defined by one thing, a really bad thing, you know, hacking the phones of a murdered school child, uh, but also of a whole load of celebrities and, and people in public life, and also a sort of mass scale uh, bribery of public officials. Now, changing a brand that has been created almost overnight, it's very, very difficult if it doesn't stand for anything else. So uh, the challenge, I think, uh, as I saw it when I joined, was to point out that what News International was, was not, you know, some sort of Sicilian family that was there to corrupt public life, uh, but the holding company that funded um, and organized and, and, and enabled world-class professional journalism at scale. And journalism is a good thing. Journalism holds uh, the rich and, and mighty to account. Journalism helps people make sense of the world. Journalism helps uh, shine a spotlight on things that are wrong in the world. And you wouldn't have 2,000 journalists, more than 2,000 journalists at, at uh, you know, Wapping and, and, and thereafter at the Baby Shard if Rupert Murdoch wasn't putting his hands into deep pockets and funding it. If News International wasn't there, then Marie Colvin would not have been heroically sort of highlighting what um, was going on in Syria and losing a life to it. Um, you know, uh, uh, your brilliant columnist would not be able to sort of tell you every, you know, every day in the Times and particularly on the weekends how to make sense of a, you know, crazy week. So, it was a case of showing, and I think this is the challenge often in communications, is not trying to pretend to something it is not, but to show something for what it really is when everybody else has got an idea that it's something different. So showing News International to be, you know, a company that funded fantastic journalism, whether it's popular journalism in the Sun or world-class journalism in the Times. And that that's the challenge. And it sounds odd that the hard thing is to to allow something to be seen for what it really is than what for than to be seen for what others want to project onto it. One of the things that I find somewhat worrying in, in the current environment in which we live, where, you know, it's citizen journalism and social media and so on, is that it everybody is vulnerable in a way to a sort of almost like a people sniff a uh, something someone has done something wrong and it and i think it can it might make people very wary of either expressing ideas or of doing certain things for fear of being lampooned and so on i mean give me your your sense on that because mine is is that we live in this world now which is offering disincentives for people to be brave either with ideas or in what they're saying yeah, we we live in an age where people can be fired from their job, um, you know, or, or, or sort of vilified globally online, um, uh, you know, for for saying something that to dare I say to a lot of people is patently obvious. Um, you know, if you give me an example, okay, give me an example there of where where you've seen it and where you've sort of you know you've, you've well, if you it. look at some of the debate about you know uh, gender identity. There are people who say things, you know, or raise issues or questions in the most respectful way possible who are vilified because there's no space uh, sometimes to sort of to question the dominant, uh, you know, Twitter kind of uh, uh, mob. 
uh, view of things. Um, and, and, and that's a strong incentive not to sort of articulate it uh, at, at greater length. But there are people who think that a journalist interviewing a certain person is somehow promoting that person's view. And then when they interview somebody of the opposite sort of end of the spectrum, that they've changed their mind. They've forgotten that the view of journalists is to challenge views and to question them, not just to sort of turbocharge them. And that's the difference in the end between so-called citizen journalism uh, and social media, where it's all just a sort of uh, a turbocharging of a view that you already have and journalism, which is to to question uh, virtually every view. You know, every journalist has his or her own sympathies politically, sort of culturally, ethnically, you know, all the rest of it. But they they professionally park them at the door and are capable of thinking that the other side may have a point. And that is a very important thing in a civilised world. And And to sort of to try and stop people from questioning your views shows a deep insecurity apart from anything else. And it's extremely bad for the quality of debate and the quality of argument um, and, and the quality of, uh, of democracy and decision-making, ultimately. Because ultimately, one has to ask oneself, you know, who's going to go into politics? If people are going to get slayed, right, if they're going to turn on their phone and they are going to see endless insults thrown at them you know which is takes less effort than to write a letter in green ink you do have to worry that in a democracy the cream those who should be in public life aren't going to go into public life that's my concern personally yeah and that's a that's a uh, a huge worry and if you look at most of the cabinet now they were all earning you know four five six seven eight times what they are paid to be in public life in their previous lives uh they you know were able to holiday wherever they wanted uh, give whatever christmas gift they wanted to their partner and eat wherever they wanted they go into public life and suddenly you get vilified as the chancellor because you've got your mug uh, your your coffee in a posh mug you know, you've gone on holiday abroad or you've travelled in the front of the plane, not that anyone would dare do that now. And it's it's a sad state of affairs in the end, isn't it? Because you're going to end up with, with people who, who've made their money before going into politics or people who are never capable of making that level of money. It's It's a preposterous state of affairs, but we're kind of stuck in it. And that must influence the sort of quality of the people who who attempted to go into public life. And and again, it's a reason for whether you agree with them or not, for admiring them, uh, for putting up with it. You know, admiring Keir Starmer, who could be earning a fortune as a barrister for getting up every day, sort of banging his head against a brick wall in the hope that four or five years down the line, he may end up, you know, throwing um, his opposite number out. By way of conclusion... I mean, I said, you know, what success and ideas all about? Is it about great ideas? Is it about good ideas? Is it about great leadership? Is it about luck? How do you see how success is achieved and, and how ideas play into that? It's a bit of all of those, isn't it? Some people are just really unlucky uh, and some are lucky. But I was always brought up to, uh, to believe that you can also create your own luck. Uh, and you have to create your own luck. It doesn't mean that you'll always succeed, but um, you have to be in a position where if there is an opportunity for you that you're able to seize it. And I think that's one of the things that those people who who get to the top are capable of doing. They don't miss an opportunity when it presents itself. And they generally manage to avoid the pitfalls that some of us fall into and, 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 and fall back on. Um, 
the proof ultimately is in the pudding. Nobody is going to be a long-term success if they are not delivering what they've promised, because they will be held to account. Uh, so you can fly high, you can fly close to the sun briefly, but you will get burnt and you'll fall back to earth You know, if you haven't put the right things in place over time. Um, so in the end, it's a combination of, uh, of luck and skill and charisma and delivery. And no one person, you know, very rare for one person to have all those qualities, which is why in the end that a key ingredient of a successful leader, I think, is hiring people who cover your weaknesses. And that's where you see, you know, the success of someone like Tony Blair is in the team around him. Um, and to a certain extent, uh, David Cameron. And that's where perhaps people now look to Boris Johnson to to hire better people around him to cover his weaknesses so that he's able to do what he's there to do. Um, there are horses for courses, but what you need to know is what you are and what you are not and hire the people who cover your weaknesses. Gitto, thank you very much. Um, I think this has been fascinating because your aspect on seeing political leaders and business leaders up close is is pretty unique. Thank you for listening to this podcast, the Success and Ideas podcast with me, Richard Myron. If you've enjoyed this programme, then please do listen to others in the series. Also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share and rate this programme. Thank you for joining me. This has been an Earshot Strategies production. All the best. <laughs>